0: So welcome everyone to this month's uh, program, History Revealed. Uh, We are now almost, I think, two years into a collaboration, three years, Robin says, uh, between the Ramsey County Historical Society and the Eastside Freedom Library. Um, A good part of those gatherings were real in-person gatherings in our beautiful Eastside Freedom Library But while that's not possible, we're learning how to use Zoom and how to have conversations and build community with each other online. Um, We're delighted to be in this partnership. If you're not familiar with the Eastside Freedom Library, I encourage you to look at our website, uh, eastsidefreedomlibrary.org. We have a newsletter that you can sign up for an electronic newsletter um, and a Facebook page and a YouTube page and all the things that people do in this period of virtual communications. Um, I just wanna tip you off that next month on January 7th, our collaboration will feature Kalkalia Yang um, and her new book, which is described as a collective refugee memoir. Um, And again, that will be the evening of January 7th. And we're just delighted to have Joan Grow and Laurie Sturtevant with us this evening and that so many of you are joining us. And we wanna try to make this as interactive um, as we possibly can. So uh, to explain the ground rules to you, I'm gonna turn you over to my colleague, Robin Priestley.
1: Thank you, Peter. Thank you. And um, we will be, um, and here's our websites. Uh, we will be asking you to put your questions in the chat box and either Lori or myself or read out your questions to Joan. So um, we will be able to do that during the presentation. And then after we stop recording, I can turn everybody's microphones off, um, excuse me, back on. And you'll be able to share some things maybe you don't want on the recording or some more personal insights and um, we can take care of that after, after we're done. So again, thank you all for coming. And again, thank you to the Eastside Freedom Library. We are proud and honored to have this long partnership and we're looking forward to 2021. We're working on programs, as Peter said, our first program is coming up on January 7th and we'll be working on a lot more programs to talk about voting, suffrage, women's history and a lot of other topics. Some of which will be tied into our exhibition that is on our website called Persistence, Continuing the Struggle for Suffrage and Equality, 1848 to 2020. And again, the link is on the homepage on our website, rchs.com, as well as links to all the upcoming programs. If you are interested in learning more about the Ramsey County Historical Society or the Eastside Freedom Library, or hopefully thinking about becoming members, Please check those out or you can call either of our offices, the numbers are on our websites um, which will have information about joining donating membership benefits and so forth. So the Ramsey County Historical Society and the Eastside Freedom Library are committed to presenting the stories and the histories of everyone in our community and we are so pleased to be able to bring you tonight's program and I'm really excited and honored to have both of our speakers here tonight. Joan Anderson Grove served as Minnesota's Secretary of State from 1975 to 1999. Widely known as an expert on voting and elections, Joan has served as an official election observer in various foreign elections. Laurie Sturtevant, a retired Star Tribune editorial writer, is the author of several books of Minnesota history, including Her Honor, Rosalie Wall and the Minnesota Women's Movement, which is a great book. So I'm going to turn it over to Lori and Joan, and thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you, Robin. It is a treat for us to be with these two institutions that we both admire so much. I happen to be a member of the Ramsey County Historical Society. And I can vouch for the good work that you do, and I'm a big fan of Peter's work at the East Side Freedom Library. It's a facility near where one of my children live, and it's a facility that has, I think, really become a state asset for those of us who like to dig into the history of how we got to be the Minnesota that we are today. I want to add my thanks, too, to Joan Groh. It's been a real pleasure, Joan, to work with you on this project. I love to do books that are memoirs with a message, and that's what this book really is. It's a Joan's personal story to be sure, but it's a lot more than that. As she really goes into some detail describing the work she did to make turnout, to make Minnesota's elections known all over the, the country uh, for the high turnout that we achieve. We really are known nationally as the state that votes. And that's because of the work that Joan did. So Joan, it was lots of fun to work on this book. Joan, I'd like you to talk about how this project, how this book came to be. Well, I think I was very fortunate
3: that you were retiring at about the time this project started. But over the years, I thought about writing something. And uh, if I was talking to a group, they'd say, oh, that's a great story, you should write that down. And I'd say, yeah, I should do that, but I can't get quite organized. And then um, Lori, in conversations with the uh, Minnesota Historical Society, they agreed they wanted to put a book out in time for uh, the celebration in August of women's suffrage. And so Lori asked me and I looked at her and said, yes, let's do it. And I must say, we did it really quickly and under a great deal of pressure. And luckily, had our pretty much our joint finished project ready before we were locked down because of the pandemic and then of course we all worked from home but uh, it was it was quite a journey and it would never have gotten to print form if it weren't for Lori's organizational skills and her ability and her knowledge about how do you put a book together I'd never written a book didn't know how to begin and she said this is what we're going to do so thank you Lori
2: Well, you're you're welcome. It was fun. And while we're giving thanks, let's tell the folks that your mother, who's been gone from us for quite a few years now, played quite a role in this project. Joan's mother, who was called Brownie by all who knew her. That was a play on her maiden name. Brownie kept great scrapbooks. And Joan, and Joan saved these great scrapbooks, clippings galore of all of Joan's public career. They yes. stacked here in my home office about four or five <laughs> deep here for quite a while and they were invaluable. So yes. I, uh, as I said to her, Brownie almost deserves her name on the cover of this book. She did such she did, a- did
3: and she would never have dreamt that that's what was gonna come <laughs> of it, but it saved us a lot of running to the historical society if you will and, uh, and a lot of research to just look at, as my kids would say, look at grandma's scrapbooks and that, there it was. So anytime she saw my name, it went in the scrapbook, not necessarily dated or labeled, but that was up
2: just to, to figure out. Well, so. we, we, she did all right. Yeah. Well, the title of the book, Turnout, was the brainstorm of Ann Regan, one of the editors at the uh, Minnesota Historical Society Press. And we're grateful to that because it really does, in one word, crystallize. What has been the, the emphasis, the goal of so much of your public work, Joan, but you, your, your interest in, in civic affairs and in participatory democracy really precedes your being in elective office. Tell us a little bit about that. Where did you get your ideas about what government's role should be and, that, and people's participation in government? Well, I, th- I think
3: it came from several sources. When I was growing up in a small town, Buffalo, Minnesota, which was a very small town at that time, my dad was the mayor. And while I didn't pay a lot of attention to local government, um, I would hear him on the phone because people always call their local officials at dinner time because they know they'll be home. And so I'd hear him discussing issues with people who lived in town or surrounding the town and, and about plans and what was needed. And so I I somehow got this idea instilled in me that that's kind of what you do. You you help your town, your community. And that's what my dad did. Now, of course, at that time, I had never seen or heard of a woman in public office. And that was, I guess, to be expected at that time. But then I went to a, um, a state school and uh, I know the tuition was, affordable for us because of the state support. i had actually thought about one of the private schools and we didn't quite have enough money for that. So I was perfectly happy there. I graduated with a teaching degree and um, I got married. And I married a man who, um, a boy, we were were 20 years old, uh, who was a senior at the University of what is now the University of St. Thomas. And so I taught and put him through his senior year of college and then through law school.
2: Well, I, and, know you hit, I know you hit a rough patch early in that marriage and that also shaped some of your thinking about government in a lasting way. Tell us about that.
3: Well, I, I discovered we now had three children, young children, each born a year apart. And I discovered as he was trying to practice law that he had a severe alcohol abuse problem, and he was physically abusive. Now, I had grown up in this isolated small town, and all of that was like foreign to me. I don't think I'd ever heard the word alcoholism, and it wasn't spoken about primarily in those days, but I ultimately had to pick up my kids and leave, and because I'd let my teaching certificate expire, I couldn't get a job in the public schools right away. So I ended up being employed by a nun over in Saint Paul, who taught. It's a principal actually of the school for exceptional children in Saint Paul, and she paid me three hundred dollars a month, which was fine for four of us to live on if you didn't, you know, do much else. And that worked out well. I think I started in January until, and then I went back to the U, uh, renewed my teaching certificate, and got a job at the public schools. The problem was between May when school let out and September when the public school started, I had no income. And I looked into finding some kind of a summer job and I couldn't find anything that paid enough to even pay the babysitter. So I went on what we called in those days, AFDC. And it was my first experience with a government agency like that. And while I was just embarrassed about being there and mortified that they'd have a standing in line waiting to get bulk grains from the shop where they had their headquarters, um, that's what I did for a summer. And if it hadn't been for that, I don't know what we would have done. I, we would not have survived that summer. I mean, you know, we would not have had the place to live. Then in the fall when school started, I earned a big salary as a teacher uh, in the public school and that was the end of it. But that lesson stayed with me for so long about the fact that you never know what circumstances you're gonna find yourself in and you might need to depend upon government for some help.
2: Joan, I remember you first told me that story in the summer of 1983 when I was assigned to cover the U.S. Senate race in '84, yes, you were already a leading candidate for that for that office and for that for that race, and you decided that it was time to go public with this story. And I remember how you emphasized this is how I learned that government has a role to play as a safety net for our people in our society. Uh, thankfully, that episode was short-lived for you, but the lesson lasted, didn't it? I, I think it, it really
3: did last, although you know I didn't want anyone to know about it at the time. I was embarrassed and I thought, my word, what's happened to me. But I realized later, and as I you know became more involved and uh, uh, more on my own, I realized that you just never know the circumstances of people's individual lives. And if we can help people when they need that help, whoever they are, wherever they are, they'll turn out to be tax paying citizens, which I have been then the rest of my life. So that's a good lesson.
2: That is the case that most of the people who are welfare still to this day in Minnesota now called the Minnesota Family Investment Program, most of them are on for less than two years uh, and most of them uh, don't return to the program again and and go on to productive lives. So that help really makes a difference. Well, in your case, you did remarry, you uh, moved to uh, first one suburb and then another, and I think you had a little stint out of state there too and then got very involved in the League of Women Voters. And I can't say enough about the role that the League of Women Voters played in in sort of being the bridge between the old suffrage movement of the 19 teens and the second wave women's movement of the late 1960s and early 1970s. You joined the League at a very propitious time because things were taking off for women and for women running for office. Tell us about that.
3: Well, I, I love the League. I mean, it was an opportunity to study government, to study issues, to be with you know, women who were all interested in learning. And we would go to the state capitol and lobby. And I mean, it was an exciting time. And it was just in the early 70s, really, late 60s, early 70s. And women were just starting, I guess, what you call the second wave of the feminist movement. And so we're looking for equality. Uh, to right some wrongs, I guess, and um, people asked, do I need to tell, should I tell that long story about uh, getting, I- maybe I can do it quickly, the- I'll keep it, there was a redistricting, and so it was 1972, it was redistricting, and our uh, state rep left to run for the Senate, very, very Republican district out in Minnetonka, we'd never elected a Democrat, And so we said, we've got to have a woman. And so our league president, Gwen, stepped down from being league president, ran to be endorsed for the Republican party and they didn't endorse her. Uh, They did what parties did in those days and maybe to a degree still do, is they endorsed the guy who had been working within the party the most, not the person who would have probably been a better legislator. So all the women were upset. And so someone said to me, you know, you've, you've got to run for the, on the DFL ticket. And I said, why would I do that? You know, I never went. I know, but then with all the coffee parties that we do, you can teach Dick, who was the Republican candidate, what the issues are, and he'll know how to vote when he gets there. Well, I said, I can't. My husband's out of town. I don't have a speech, and I don't have a babysitter. And by now, we had four children. And don't worry, my leaguers said one of them came over to my door and she had a speech. And it was the exact same speech on the same recipe cards that Gwen Luda had given at the Republican convention. And every word that said Republican was crossed out and it said Democratic. And somebody provided a babysitter. I went, I got endorsed. There was no other candidate. They said, Yay. And, you know, go ahead now and start getting elected. Well, what a shock that was, um, didn't know anything about campaigns, but uh, with my of friends, they put together, and most of us were all former school teachers. They put together a grassroots campaign that you could not reproduce today because women are out in the workforce. But most women were home then, and they put this together and it, it didn't plan to be that way, but it evolved into a campaign that was all women, and the only people who didn't think we were going to win was my campaign manager Gretchen Fogo and myself. <laughs> all the workers thought we were going to win, and did. we did. We did end up winning.
2: Yes, and you want a solid victory, and it's really uh, uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the book to describe how grassroots politics. This, of course, uh, was forty-eight years ago, but grassroots politics driven by energized women really worked then, I'd like to think it still does. Well, you I all- I'd like to
3: think so too, Laurie. Yeah. No.
2: You arrived at the legislature in a really interesting time. 1973 session was the first time in state history when the DFL controlled both houses of the legislature and the governorship, Wendell Anderson was governor and there was a floodgate of lots of good legislation passed. You were the the sponsor of the open meeting law, which is a, a a law that we still live with today. It made a big difference in the way both the legislature and local governments operate. And you voted for a bill that played in your decision to run for secretary of state, the big, the first statewide election law the state had Minnesota had passed. Tell us about that.
3: Well, the the bill was huge. I mean, in terms of what it encompassed, it was required voter registration throughout the state of Minnesota. And prior to that uh, legislation, multiple parts of the state didn't require any voter registration you just walked in your polling place and signed your name it also allowed people to register by mail and it allowed for election day registration it was a mammoth mammoth, huge bill and i was so excited about it because it were all the things we talked about when i was in the legal and voters so i was very excited and towards the end as the bill was coming down for a final vote, I noticed that the Secretary of State was lobbying against it. And I thought, now, why is he doing that? He's in charge of elections, he he should be promoting this. And then when the legislature passed it, he kind of lobbied Wendell Anderson to veto the bill. And I thought, this isn't right. This is the person who's in charge of elections. And he should be promoting this helping to implement it doing everything he can and that was one of the first i guess inklings i had that boy if i had that
2: job i would certainly do something different so i decided to run well you did and you ran in a very propitious year for dflers 1974 was the watergate year yes and turnout was really down 200,000 fewer republicans voted in 1974 than had in the previous midterm election of 1972, or 1970, I should say. So you won and so did a lot of other DFLers up and down the ballot. The legislature's DFL uh, uh, ranks hit their high water mark to to this day. And uh, uh, you were seen quickly as a rising star, so much so that you then are being recruited heavily to run for the U.S. Senate in 1984. And I remember you didn't, your arm didn't have to be twisted really too hard. Did it, Joan? Oh, no, it
3: didn't. I, I you know, I had been in office for many years. I had traveled the state. I'd been elected statewide a couple of times and, and people talked to me about running for the U.S. Senate. And I toyed with it and I finally thought, well, this is, this is the opportunity. So in 84, I decided to take that on and I knew it was an uphill battle. Uh, running against an incumbent, always is. And um, I decided, well, I'm going to do it anyway. So it was, it was quite the experience. I think, Laurie, I think I was the first woman who's ever been endorsed by a major party for the US Senate. And uh, that was kind of eye-opening to people uh, first. And then um, I won the primary and then of course lost in the general election. Um, But hopefully, and as I said, I think on election night that while I didn't win that election, um, I hope that maybe I'd opened up the path a bit for future women to run for higher office because we hadn't really seen any women uh, running for higher office.
2: And it took how many years before Amy Klobuchar was elected? Another another 26, 24 years, I believe it was, a long time before before we finally broke that glass ceiling. And of course, we still have not elected a female governor. No, The book book tells lots of stories about those two campaigns, both your 74 campaign running for Secretary of State and then your 84 campaign, where people would ask a lot of strange Uh questions that men didn't typically get asked. (laughs) Uh, Joan, uh, the one story that uh, that sticks in my head right now is it's the final days of the 1984 campaign. Your adult son, David, is working on the campaign. He has graduated from college and is taking some time before starting his career to help his mom's campaign. He's out the night or two before the election. Do you remember the question that he was asked when he was being interviewed? I I do. My
3: kids were really good doing whatever they were skilled at to help with the election, but he was out in... um, Western Minnesota, and he, and he knew enough to he could answer some of the questions. And if he didn't know my position on something, he knew better than to say so. So he would evidently had a very good interview. And just as they were winding down, the man said to him, the interviewer from the radio station said, now, David, the election's in tomorrow night or tomorrow or the day after. He said, I bet when you get home tonight, your mom will have a nice, hot, cooked meal for you. <laughs> Luckily, my son knew enough to not say a word, but even he was incensed at that question. Of course, I'm home cooking a meal two days
2: before election day. So, there are a lot of those kinds of stories. There are a lot
3: of them for people who were accustomed to women being in the home and weren't sure if they should step out quite so far.
2: Joan was often asked, "What's it like to run for office as a woman?" And uh, we, she told me, she wished she had known the good answer that Colorado St- U.S. Representative Pat Schroeder used when she briefly ran for president in 1988. When she was asked, "What's it like to run as a woman?" she would say, "I don't didn't think I had any other option." Sure. What's such a good answer. She was so clever. I know. We describe a lot in the book about your Secretary of State career and kind of in two parts. The before the Senate race part, which is a time when you were really modernizing the office and putting much more of the office's focus on elections, rather than archival things and other kinds of things that had been uh, a focus of that office previous to your tenure. And then afterwards, you become uh, the advocate for reforms of the kind that would make it easier for people to vote. And you had a marvelous partnership with the staff in your office, including a, a name that I think many of our listeners will recognize, Joe Mansky. Got right. his start working for Joan as a, a guy who was, I think, a hydrologist of some by, by training. He was. He never he never worked on elections. till We hired him. So well, among the many contributions you made of value to Minnesota, hiring Joe Mansky was a big one yeah. because he you know, became the, the the sort of our, our legendary elections expert and a national figure in election reform. But Joan, right. you in, in the 87 session, in the 89 session, in 91, you were pushing for expanding the opportunity to vote by mail. Right. Uh, you first proposed allowing no excuses, absentee voting, right. uh, really shore up election day registration, which was under Constant assault, not just but constant assault. And tell us about how frustrating it must have been to try to propose all these reforms. Well, we would we would try to
3: figure out what we wanted to try to get through the legislature every session. And if some of you may recall that in the olden days you had to not that far away either, far back. um, If you wanted to vote absentee, you had to have a reason. I mean, you had to be ill or not able to leave the house or something. And we said that just isn't right. And I knew dozens and dozens of people who told me that they voted absentee, even though they could easily have gone to the polls, it was just easier. They were unsure about the weather. So we would introduce this bill every year. No excuses, absentee voting. And we couldn't get that passed. Every session we started again, and it wasn't until 2000, I think it was 13 13. Yes. that that bill finally passed. I mean, what it was took, after
2: you first proposed
3: it. Yeah, from from the middle 80s. And I mean, it was like, no one would believe it if you said that was a true story. Because now of course, and we saw that in this last election, absentee voting makes a huge difference and it gives people an option and it it should have been there long before that but finally it came to fruition so
2: well it really did make a huge difference this year and the ability to absentee vote voting by mail uh, yes. it, which is the way many people do it otherwise people other people would drop off their ballots early or other do something else but, but that option became very significant this year even as the president kept saying that there was something amiss or wrong about that right
3: and i think of all the lawsuits and all all the studies and all of the recounts and all the people have gone through and the election was historic because of the number of absentee ballots and voting by mail and yet there haven't been cases of fraud and you know we knew that we knew that but it's very difficult as we have seen to get some people uh, to admit to that
2: what, what is your take on this current election? Are you pleased with how Minnesota performed? Almost 30% oh. uh, turnout? We had wonderful
3: turnout. I mean, and I think the whole country had great turnout, but Minnesota, I believe was again, number one in the country. I think 10th out of
2: the last 12
3: elections. Yep, and, and well-conducted elections. I mean, we don't realize, I call it the infrastructure uh, in an election, and most of us go to vote once or twice a year, and we don't think about it under the signing your ballot, and putting in the ballot box, but it takes hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people to make sure that all that all goes smoothly. So there's always a time when I think we need to thank those election judges. We need to thank those local administrators. We need to thank the Secretary of State for uh, keeping our laws progressive and moving forward. But I thought I thought, and we even had an outcome fairly soon in Minnesota, so um, I just thought the election went very smoothly here, and as I've heard other secretaries of state around the country say, it went smoothly in their states too.
2: Well, I I know that you agree with me that uh, a high turnout situation, high turnout in our elections has made a real difference in Minnesota's quality of life, Uh, When people participate in elections in this way, they feel they have more control over their government, they can hold their government more to account. And government isn't so much this alien force trying to inflict misery on people or whatever kind of anti-government rhetoric we sometimes hear. Government really is an extension of ourselves, allowing us to do together things that are, are difficult to do on our own. And that, that has made a big difference in the, the state that Minnesota has been through the years, that we have been the state that allows people easy access to the polls. Oh, that's right. And they can
3: invest then. and they And they feel like they're investing in the state and they feel secure
2: in it. And
3: I think it's made a difference in the culture in Minnesota.
2: Yes, well, changing election laws, as Joan pointed out, is always difficult. The, le- the legislature is populated by people who won elections. And that <laughs> right. means that they, they like the, the status quo because they have mastered it. The idea that the stat- that the election procedures should somehow change, is that was suspicion by people who already hold election certificates. And, and
3: you know, Laurie, when we would bring a proposal uh, to the committee, you could just see the minds. Clicking in the legislature said, Let's see, I got elected under this system. What if this was in place? How would that impact my election? And I guess that's a normal human response, but that's the reason it was so tough uh, to change election law.
2: Well, and we've had now. Three governors in a row that has, have said that um, uh, they will not, maybe it's four, I can't go back to, I think Ventura might have done this too, uh, uh, said that it, we have to have bipartisan agreement before any change in election law could come. And bipartisan agreement on election laws has become very hard oh, to come by in recent impossible. years. President. Impossible. Yeah. 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 yeah, we have we have one party that's willing to engage in vote suppression. Yeah,
3: that's, that's right. right. So and. Hear. Every year from from the time that uh, Election Day Voter Registration Law was passed in 1973, every legislative session since then, we've had to fight to keep that. There's always been a movement to do away with Election Day registration to make it more difficult for people to register. So it doesn't go away. There are always folks who want to suppress the vote by one way or another. And
2: I know you and I, well, you and I are very interested in the notion that there should be automatic voter registration. Yes. That, that, that rather than having people to take a, an affirmative action to be registered, that that happens automatically when they acquire a driver's license or do other kinds of business with the state. There are quite a few states that have got have got this now, and and Minnesota is, which uh, has a, always a good reputation when voting is concerned. Minnesota is lagging behind in that innovation.
3: We are lagging behind and we used to always be the first one I can remember going to conferences and they'd want me to speak about something or I can remember Joe being asked to go talk to election directors about the new system of uh, computerizing elections and now we have just from the struggle of getting new legislation passed, we are not the leading uh, progressive state on elections anymore.
2: So if we want to continue to feel proud and, and, and enjoy the benefits that we have enjoyed of high voter turnout, we're going to need to up our game a little bit in coming years I think like so. That. I okay. think so. All right, well, we're ready for some questions from the chat function. And so I'm going to see if I can find one. And maybe I don't. And so maybe we'll ask for Peter and Robin to chime in with some questions that they may have in mind for us. Please use the chat function on your Zoom screen down at the bottom, center bottom of the screen to pose a question to Joan or to both of us, please.
0: Well, let me start with the question. Um, what do you think about this political climate that we now find ourselves in? Um, and what does our history suggest to us about how to navigate our way through um, a president who is challenging the validity of of the elections and encouraging people to question the legitimacy of of the whole process um, you know, how what, what can we, we're, this is a history program, Russia. history revealed. What can we learn from history uh, to help us navigate uh, this, this challenge?
3: Well, I think we're gonna, I think have to hope that when this president does decide to leave office and he will on January 20th, um, that we're hoping he just kind of quiets down a bit. I think he's been very uh, prone to getting people excited, to talking about false issues. And I've never seen this state or this country quite so divided, quite so angry. Um, I, I, I said to somebody the other day, I'm so glad I'm not there anymore because we always had Democrats and Republicans But we got along. I mean, we used to sit next to each other. We co-chaired bills with them. And now everything is so partisan that it's very difficult uh, to to function in that kind of a climate, as we have seen from watching our legislature. I think there's some hope. Joe Biden keeps saying he wants to bring the country together. He wants to try to... um, you know, salve some of these wounds and um, so far I think his cabinet picks have been good and there's no one who's gonna go out and do anything rash. Um, I just think we have to hope for the future and perhaps individually start to think more kindly about the opposition. I mean, it's sometimes I wondered how people could vote for Trump I, I really did. And then I realized, well, they may have something in their life or it may be a real reason. And I think we need to get over those and we need to look ahead and look forward so that we can continue to have a decent democracy functioning.
2: You know, Peter, Joan made the point earlier in our conversation here about what local enterprises elections really are. In Minnesota, it takes 30,000 people, many of them very low-paid, one-day-only employees volunteer or or, or virtual volunteers to run an election. That means that an awful lot of us know someone who's an election judge or had a relative who used to be an election judge, which is the case (laughs) with me. Uh, uh, There's a personal connection to all of this that I think tamps down, at least in Minnesota, given this decentralized, very hands-on approach that we use, in it, it, Minnesota, it's it's hard to uh, uh, claim that there's something really badly amiss with our elections. The other good thing that Joan did, and this Joan and, and Joe Mansky did, was insist on paper, a paper ballot trail. trail. So we had a, a stress test for Minnesota elections, actually two of them. We had the, the Al Frank and Norm Coleman recount in 2008, and we had a, a, a recount in 2010 with the governor's race, a, yes. not as close of a margin. But those recounts really proved the, the value of paper ballots scanned by machine on election night or and then scanned by, by human human beings looking at the ballots through a recount process. There's not much discrepancy. We have recounts, automatic recounts all the time in legislative races that are close, very seldom will the, a recount overturn the, the result in Minnesota. The fact that we have that history, I think gives Minnesotans confidence in their elections. Uh, I see a few other questions now here. Let's see if I can read them. Joan, can you share a bit about some of the foreign elections that you witnessed? I think there were seven of them, weren't there, Joan? I think there were seven or eight.
3: Um, I, I think uh, I think the most dramatic one and the one that uh, people remember is the South Africa election. And I was there under the auspices of the United Nations. And we were in teams and uh, sent to different parts, you know, after an orientation and uh, uh, how how do you do this and what do you do our team was up in um, oh lord I'm trying to remember the name of the area now anyway we were in the northern part of south africa
2: we should say this was the first free and open election for african americans for south africans who, of
3: everyone could
2: vote everyone yeah. could
3: vote and um my partner was uh, a government official from poland anyway he, our job was to go every day out to these precincts in this township and go from precinct to precinct. You were not to interfere with the election. You were to stand quietly and watch it. And um, you know, if they had a question, you could answer it. But I used to worry because if you remember seeing the picture on the cover of Time Magazine with the zigzag of people standing out in the sun uh, for days. I mean, the election ended up being extended for two or three days. And so I would go out and um, and walk down that line of people and say, now, don't worry. You know, there's, there's going to be enough ballots. You'll eventually get there. It was such a slow process because so many of the people could not read. And they would come into the voting booth just really terrified in many ways. They didn't know what to expect. And uh, they'd say, I-, I want to vote for the man who was in prison, which of course was Mandela. Um, and they had a picture of all the candidates next to their names, or they'd point to the picture. And one day I was going down this line and saying hello. And then the, I kind of patted a woman on the arm or something. And I said, don't worry, you're going to get there. I mean, you know, we're not going to run out of ballots. And she looked at me. And she put her hand on me and she said you know i've waited 80 years to vote she said eight more hours won't make any difference and i thought oh my i i wish i could have infused that spirit of uh, gratitude for the right to vote and i said i want to take it back to the united states and float it over the whole country but it was quite an enlightening experience and every country was different, but that was probably the most emotional.
2: Well, and you did come back and tell told those stories. I found those in the Brownie scrapbooks, the stories <laughs> that, that, that got some attention because we all were impressed that, yeah. uh, well, Minnesota elections are considered so good that the chief elections officer from Minnesota was a, 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 a easy ask. whenever the UN wanted uh, some election observers to go to a foreign country and participate in that. And those uh, exercises had value in terms of the amount of of aid and other uh, uh, supports that would flow to those countries if they were able to conduct elections in such a way that an observer like you would find them valuable.
3: That's right. Then then their aid
2: might come from the United States. So yeah. yeah, it's quite an experience. I spy a question in the chat function that we, I, I used to get when I would be out traipsing around with my most recent previous book, which was with Dave Durenberger. It's a question about the future of the electoral college. Do you think it should be abolished? Dave and I would always disagree on that one, and I don't know what your position is, Joan. Well, I think I think it should be. I think it's oh, I, well, long. We agree on that one then.
3: Oh, good. We do agree. I guess we've never talked about it. I think oh, it, yes. it's long out lived its original intent, and I think it should be. I'm unclear, Laura, you probably know where the status is
2: of a project that's going through to try to change it, but- National uh, Popular Vote Compact. It's, yeah, It's it's so people know what that is. It's an agreement that the states, through their legislatures, enter into to promise that this legislature will send electors to vote for the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of how people in that state voted. Okay. That has stopped, ground to a halt, because Republicans control a majority of state legislatures in this right. country and Republicans hate this. Yeah. And I'm not sure it would stand up in, in a court test, to tell you the truth, because what you would be saying, the legislators would be saying, we're going to disregard the will of our own voters and go instead with the will of all the voters in the country as measured by the national popular vote that might stand up in court it's a it's an idea that um, uh, certainly many people think has merit but it's it's troublesome it it, it i think it would appall uh, the, the people who wrote our constitution to learn that 230 years on we find it almost impossible to amend that thing there are, there are many amendments of the Constitution, I think, would, would be an asset to us right now. And we, as long, especially with divided government in Washington, and okay. uh, 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 when these constitutional proposals for change are resisted strongly by one of the major parties, it's really difficult right now to pass a constitutional amendment. And yet, what I would always say in those meetings with Dernberger, as he would defend federalism, I would say, imagine a situation which we could have had this year, with, yeah. uh, with uh, the popular vote going to Joe Biden by 5 million, 6 million, it did go to the party Pop- him by 6 million. Uh, but you can imagine a situation where he won the popular vote by that large a margin and still lost the electoral college because of the way the votes right. distributed themselves among the, the states. Yeah. Imagine then what inauguration day looks like when you have a, a minority president being inaugurated for a second term, especially one who is as, as polarizing. As Donald Trump could be, and what does the National Mall look like, folks, when that's the case? And do how do we feel about the way our country will hang together? Um, sometimes people would ask me, "Have we ever seen this country as divided as it is right now?" And I would say, "Yes, in the 1850s." Hmm. Think about that. That's right. So I, I'm I'm thinking that some action should be done with regard to electoral college. Yes, some kind of abolition or or major reform. Yeah. And I think people
3: feel a constitutional amendment; it just becomes impossible.
2: It's, it's become so difficult. Well, in, in the ERA, which is part of the story of the book, is is another case in point. Right. Uh, Jones' first speech on the floor of the Minnesota House was for the ERA, and thanks to Brownie's Scrapbook, we found the text and were able to quote from it. So, yeah,
3: yeah, it's great. Uh,
2: that's great. Right. My mother would be thrilled. <laughs> no, but but you, you know, it's notable that you in 1973 in january gave your first speech on the floor of the legislature and it happened to be on the very day that the roe v wade decision came down yes it was we spoke a few hours after that so it was january 22nd we know the date <laughs> and, uh, yeah and, and and we're still waiting for the era to be ratified. we're still waiting yeah so progress wait. is hard robin Sorry. do you have a question that you can tee up for us here
1: yes i do there's two related questions on um how to restore or enhance public trust in the election system. And again, talking about um, there are always claims about voter fraud and there's never any proof. So those two questions about how do we um, restore trust in the election system and lay some of these claims to rest?
3: Well, I think transparency in the system is one and uh, having elected officials support election system and not doing all these trumpisms that we're hearing around the country i mean they've had testimony from different secretaries of state even republican secretaries of state the georgia one secretary of state has been really firm about we don't have any fraud it has been a fair election that helps and then i think as Lori, the perfect example is you do a recount and if you have a paper trail you can't really dispute that you could sit and look and count and count and you're going to get those same numbers um and i don't know what else we can do and and her point about we all know someone who is an election judge or was one and they are just doing their best job and i think we don't question anything else that way but we just have to have our faith in the fact that we have elected the right public officials who will carry those duties out faithfully.
2: There's a related issue to all of this that it comes into, comes to my mind as we're, as we're thinking about this. Part, one of the, the fraud claims that is made is that illegal immor- or undocumented immigrants are voting. The penalties for doing so are so great they would be deported so so quickly. And, and you know, that it's hard for me to believe that, that people go to any kind of effort to, to do that. Nevertheless, we need immigration reform in this country. Yeah. We shouldn't have a country with 12 million or however many it is uh, undocumented people living and working and being part of our communities. If right. we could do immigration reform in such a way that we could regularize those folks, yeah. we, we'd be in a much better place to, to feel good about the participation of all of us in the electoral process, the other th- change that has been teed up in Minnesota and many other states is allowing people who are no longer who are felons but are no longer incarcerated to vote. Minnesota has some of the longest probationary periods post-incarceration in the country. Uh, it's part of our strategy of keeping prison time kind of down, but keeping a, 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 some sort of a string on on a, a offender longer than than uh, the prison sentence would be. Many states have said, once you're out of jail, you can vote. North Dakota, next door to us, has said that for many years. Minnesota should do that, too. That's
3: a big reform that
2: they need to work
3: on.
1: So some of the other reforms people are talking about in the chat are um, ranked choice voting, jungle primaries that um, take place in California. So what do you think about those, and what a combination of those two, maybe in a primary election, Um, how do you feel those might work here?
2: Well, Joan, this is one I know Joan and I do disagree on because I'm a fan of ranked choice voting and she is not. Why don't you go first, Joan, and explain your position? Well, I I just never understood
3: the need for ranked choice voting. I understand that people should win an election, I guess, with the majority of the votes. But, um, and I think we need to support independent parties in a fashion that if they're a legitimate independent party and get a certain number of the votes, they need to be recognized, which is what we do. But I just, um, and I live in Minneapolis, which I think was the first community to adopt ranked choice voting. And I remember when they were talking about it, and I'm not quite as vigorously bothered by it as I was at the beginning, Lori, I don't know if you're swaying me or I'm <laughs>
2: working. We're working on you, <laughs> It's
3: so complicated. And, it's, it, and the first election we had in Minneapolis was so awful with it. We had 30-some candidates and they kept saying- The filing saying, fee was $20, that's why. <laughs> that's right, I know. But, Easy to get on the ballot. But there were all these factors that went into it and they said, oh, well, then it'll be easier. You can hear more dialogue about the issues because people will be looking for the second choice vote. Well, I'm telling you, there was more nasty dialogue than I'd ever heard before with all these people. And I just didn't understand the reasoning behind it, uh, particularly in a city that is strongly democratic and is always going to elect a Democrat, I think. I mean, it may change in the future, but at least that's what we've seen in the past. And I thought, why are they doing that? And I remember talking with Mr. Mondale at the time, and we decided we were just old and out of date, because (laughs) neither of us could understand why they were doing that. Well, my
2: good friend Ivan Fraser was right there with you, but Don her husband and I, this is this made for good dinner party conversations, Don, and I sided up with the ranked choice voting side, because that's a way to have multiple candidacies and multiple voices and still get to a majority rule result. We have too much minority rule in this country, in my opinion. We have the U.S. Senate with its filibuster rules, and the way it's, it, just the way it's structured, allows the disproportionate power to with small population states to minorities. The Electoral College is another thing that, perpetuate, that perpetuates minority rule, empowering a minority. Uh, plurality rule elections with multiple candidacies also result in a minority rule outcome. We have we elected four governors in a row, four or four elections, gubernatorial elections in a row. Was the governor elected with fewer than 50% of the vote? It was Jesse Ventura. It was Tim Poletti twice, and it was Mark Dayton's first election. All winning with a plurality rather than a majority. I can't help but think that that contributed to the gridlock we then experienced in the legislative legislative sessions with the governor not really having a firm mandate of a majority of the votes. If we have a a three-party gubernatorial election in 2022, and I think that's very likely given the fact that we now have a couple of independent state senators, uh, look out for a third three-party race there. And I don't know how that will go, but unless we have ranked choice voting, the chances of a of a governor being elected again with less than 50 percent of the vote is very real. I think majority rule works better in a an democracy, and that's why I'm for ranked choice voting. Well said. Yeah, she mentions the jungle primary, and I think I know what that means. That's uh, uh, there's it really it runs like the old nonpartisan. Yes. As we used to have, anybody can vote for any party, yes. and and uh, it was sometimes there's proposals to go back to a nonpartisan legislature. Joan, you served in a nonpartisan legislature, didn't you? In a nonpartisan? Well, no. Um, they, they, they had they gone to party designation in 1973. They they voted for it in
3: 1972, so it was partisan. But even prior to that, Laurie. Um, everyone knew who you caucused with anyway. That's right. So it, it it wasn't as if you were hiding from people if you were a conservative or a liberal is what they were called. I mean, I remember my state senator, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, caucused with when I was a kid growing up. His daughter was a friend of mine. He caucused with the conservatives, you know. My, he was very good. He was did well in the Senate, did well for the community as I understand it, but um, People know who you are, and it was really about. That was a good League of Voter position too, to have people come out from hiding, as we used to say, and tell us who they really are. And in the campaign, my first campaign in '72, we tried to do that. Although it didn't say Democrat or Republican on the ballot, all our lawn signs said Democrat. You know, all our literature identified me as a Democrat, and that's how we. Uh,
2: identified ourselves in our campaign. We have time for just one more question, Robin. Do you have a good one teed up for us here?
1: We do have a good one. Um, And I apologize if we didn't get exactly to any questions. But the last question, um, which will be a good discussion, is somebody asking how can civility be restored between the leaders of the Democratic and Republican Party? Um, The angst seems to be lowered with Biden's election. But during the past few years, both sides have been at one another, um, and so forth. So, you touched on it a little bit, um, on you know how the senate is working with the minority and so forth. But, do you have any insights on how we can sort of get past the current situation?
3: Well, the only thing I could say about it is that some leaders are more interested in negotiating than others and I think there are some folks who um, are more interested in holding their position sometimes than getting something done then and I I don't know how you get around that you try to get different leaders I guess of that caucus or uh, you try to let their hometown folks know that they are holding up progress. I think also that a hard lesson for and for legislators when you're first elected is to learn that you might feel very strongly about your position, but you're not always gonna get everything you want a hundred percent of the time. And so it's the art of trying to make a compromise. And for some people that is definitely very difficult. And I think the, the, the ill feeling that has been built up just can go back to, some people in both parties, I suppose, who have fostered that. And often they are people who are in districts that are totally either Democratic or Republican, and that's what they represent. And they just go head to head and they're not willing to make that kind of a promise. And I think that's only harmful to their communities, to the state, and quite frankly, to the nation. I mean, I thought the conduct of, of uh, putting Supreme Court people in place in the last few years has been just shameful. I mean, just absolutely shameful that it, it never was so partisan. I mean, people were rejected for what they thought were good reasons, but I don't remember it being quite that partisan and kind of just slamming through what you want. So Laurie, you probably have a good idea of okay. that. Well,
2: we, we've allowed politics to become an end in itself rather than a means to the end of good governance. And, and the only way we'll get back to a focus on governance is if citizens demand that. And the way citizens can demand that is by turning out and voting in elections so that we're back to our, our theme. <laughs> a, a, state, a state that votes is in much better position to demand good, good governance from the people who are elected. This is not a power game, folks. This is, this is about what we do together to build a good society. I'm <clears throat> often quoting to people, the famous Paul Wellstone line, we all do better when we all do better. We all do better when we all participate in the mm-hmm. government that we have. So on that note, Joan, I think we've reached the 8 o'clock hour. Thank you very right. much. Thank you, Lori. And thank you to all of you who were listening
3: in and watching tonight. Thank you, have you very much. had a good time. We did.
2: <laughs> yes, we did.
1: And thank you both for a wonderful discussion. Thank you, everybody who came and participated. Please check out our YouTube channels on both the Ramsey County Historical Society and the Side Freedom Library. The video of this discussion will be posted relatively soon, probably tomorrow or perhaps Monday, depending on when it gets ready. And again, please join us on January 7th for Carol Kelly Levang. Um, talking about her new book and watch for more great programming. And again, thank you all so much for being here and thank you Joan and Lori for a wonderful, wonderful discussion. Have a great holiday, everybody. Stay safe. And if thank you. You'd like to stay you go, out,
0: Joan. Thank you. Goodbye
1: recording. Bye-bye. Thank you so much.